0: Welcome back to this prorata where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business and politics. I'm Dan Primack, and today I am actually on an assignment at a conference in Los Angeles. So rather than do a new program today, we're going to rerun something we did in early March, a conversation with 2020 presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg, who no one really knew when we first did the interview, but who is now all over the place. Enjoy. Mr. Mayor, it's been said for a long time that cities are America's public policy and kind of innovation labs, and you've had lots of ideas and thoughts about how to make things run more efficiently in South Bend. So basically, why run for president rather than continue to test out these ideas in your city?
1: You know, I love uh, the opportunity to be mayor and in, by in going on eight years, we've been able to do things I'm really proud of for our community. But we're also operating in a national environment that is making it harder and harder for mayors to do our jobs. And I think uh, we would be well served to have Washington begin to look more like our best-run cities and towns rather than the other way around, which is what I fear will happen if we don't begin finding ways to bring the best of local leadership and local problem-solving to the highest offices. At the city level, we are compelled to innovate. We're compelled to solve problems.
0: If you become president, how do you make the jobs of mayors and governors easier?
1: Well, for one thing, we we create an environment that empowers good local leaders to do their work. Uh, That means directing resources directly to local communities uh, in ways that right now are often either held up at the federal level or sometimes overly mediated by the state level. It also means uh, making sure that the intangible roles of the highest offices, for example, the simple function of bringing people together and summoning people to their highest values, takes place. You know, right now, uh, we're dealing with often an atmosphere of 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 fear at the local level and people being pitted against one another that comes in part from a tone that's being established from the White House and filtering on down into our schools into our neighborhoods and uh into our society at a very granular level that makes it that much tougher for a mayor to summon a community toward a common purpose in dealing with challenges ranging from gun violence to infrastructure investment at the local level
0: you're known for talking a lot about both ai and automation and the possible labor dislocations that come from that so from your perspective Are robots going to come and take someone's job and there won't be another job for them? And if so, do we need kind of a universal basic income? Or are you of the mind that the jobs will get replaced and the technology will create new, different jobs for the future?
1: In the long term and on average, there will be as many and as good jobs created as those that are replaced. The problem is most of us don't live in the long term and most of us don't live in the average. We're specific people and those transitions could last a lifetime. And if they happen to you, it's not important to you what's happening in the aggregate. It's important to uh, find a, a way to make a living and, and succeed going forward. Uh, I also think, though, that, that we've made a mistake by assuming that this is strictly... An issue about replacing uh, uh, income. Uh, You know, even when you find a way to get somebody uh, a new position or a new source of income, uh, we're not speaking to what I think is the deeper issue, especially affecting people in the industrial Midwest where I live, associated with the changes to our economy. If we want to prepare for a, a world where people may be changing jobs or even changing careers, Uh, in my generation more frequently than people in my parents' generation change job titles, then we need to also recognize the shocks that are going to come to people's self-understanding and and sense of identity, because uh, it used to be that you could get your sense of identity partly from a career-long relationship with a single employer. And we need to face the fact that that's going to become the exception rather than the rule in the future. There are ways that we can prepare for that, but if we don't, if we don't find ways to uh, help people uh, establish roles in their communities, for example, and civic involvement that provides a a bridge when it comes to understanding how you fit in, even as, as your professional life may go through a lot more change, if we fail to do that, then there will be a lot of other, uh, I think, very ugly sources of uh, filling that void, including uh, you know, some of the worst kinds of, uh, uh, of nationalism and white identity politics that I think is being offered up as an alternative uh, for people who no longer understand how they fit into the world when their uh, professional environment is changing every few years.
0: From your perspective, is, is that a question of just different education? And I don't mean skill trainings at the community college level, but more kind of fundamentally, maybe even going back to early childhood.
1: Yeah, one thing we're piloting right now in South Bend with support from philanthropy is a lifelong learning platform. Uh, that's about a lot more than whether you can get this skill or, or, or that uh Course credit. It's really about making sure people are resilient, uh, working toward an environment where uh, you know automation is going to uh, really do away with the most uh, repeatable physical tasks in our jobs, and it's going to leave us with the, the parts that have the most to do with critical thinking and human interaction and building up those skills. You know, not just for uh, people going to university, but really for uh, for everybody. That's going to be the name of the game if we want to equip people to be resilient and to succeed. As technical changes come along that, uh, uh, you know, even today we we can't uh, really adequately predict, Uh, you know, trying to be one or two steps ahead in the technical skills game is not enough. We've got to make people resilient toward the the kinds of changes that are going to come, even if those particular flavors of change are hard to guess at uh, today looking forward.
0: You mentioned China and there's this sentiment in Silicon Valley right now, uh, particularly when it comes to artificial intelligence, that China is eating our lunch and is doing so because of government funding for it. So I'm curious, particularly given your military background and your policy background in 10 to 15 years, are we going to be way behind China because of what they're doing now?
1: Largely, yes. I think uh, you know if you look at uh, how investment is being made there in the billions, then you look at our own what was offered up as kind of an early entry in something resembling an AI strategy that came out of the administration recently. You know, it, it assigns nothing close to those kinds of resources, and this is not a game where we can afford to be left behind. There will always be some forms of you know important, uh, fundamental, and basic research that is not going to happen from the private sector or the corporate world alone. It requires a national strategy, and uh, I would. Expect expect uh, the country, the United States, the country that literally invented the Internet in a publicly sponsored research environment to be ahead of the curve instead of as we currently are falling behind uh, when it comes to things like AI, deep learning and uh, the kinds of of technologies and the kinds of cognition that are really going to power the 21st century.
0: There's also been a lot of talk on the Democratic side, not just among presidential candidates, but also among sitting legislators over the past year or two, about worries of concentration of power in a small handful of big tech companies. So, do you believe that the next administration's Justice Department should look at companies like Google, Facebook, and Amazon from an antitrust perspective?
1: Yeah, there's no question that, uh, and this goes beyond tech, that uh, the the U.S. has uh, become Um, frankly, let down its guard when it comes to monopoly policy. And uh, too often, the concentration of wealth has been allowed in our system to turn into the concentration of power. Now, some of that has to do more, I think, with the political side and making sure that uh, we have uh, controls on the role of money in politics and other ways that uh, economic power has been uh, allowed to uh, get converted into political power. But we also have to look at at market power and look at uh, what a market uh, really is. And uh, when competition is being squelched, when uh, dominance of one part of the marketplace is being turned into another, you know, in some ways these are uh, uh, monopoly problems and market problems that, even though they're associated with tech, are almost old fashioned in their nature. Uh, And it requires a a greater attention to the kind of, you know, controls on monopoly power that keep our economy competitive and our democracy democratic.
0: Let me go to the specifics, though, because there's at least popular affiliation between you and Facebook. Uh, You've been friendly with Mark Zuckerberg and had him out to South Bend. Should Facebook, Amazon and Google potentially have antitrust issues? Basically, are they monopolies?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I don't want to prejudice future uh, uh, proceedings. And, uh, you know, obviously each company has its own profile. But uh, there's no question that uh, you're a know, concentration that should set off alarms uh, from a market perspective. And there's a whole other set of issues that are, are less in the antitrust bucket, but, but also need attention. Having to do with the ownership of data and deciding when we're going to be effectively the product. Uh, you know, the Europeans have been uh, much more serious than we have. Uh, about policies establishing uh, what uh, it means to own data, what relationship we have to the data we create, uh, what access we should uh, be able to assert uh, in order to find out what's been done with our data and who's been looking at it and why. And while uh, the GDPR may not be the exact template that you would just copy and paste for the U.S., uh, it's certainly the case that the U.S. is behind. And by the way, not being served well in uh, some of these spectacles where you see uh, legislators attempting for political reasons to... Uh, show that that they can hold uh, tech executives accountable. But in these hearings, making it abundantly clear that they barely understand the thing that they're supposed to be regulating.
0: Mr. Mayor, final question to you is a simple one. Are you having fun running for president?
1: Yeah, I am. You know, you get to travel the country. You get to meet uh, really interesting people. And, uh, you know, the, the pace of it is demanding. But uh, also every day you're reminded of what's at stake because, you know, people come to these events. And right now I'm, I'm on the road uh, uh, back from Iowa. The folks that I've been meeting in these early states are asking really profound And really important thought-provoking questions. It's it's not all kind of parochial concerns and and, uh, it's not uh, kind of small ball stuff. They want to know about the future of the republic. They take their responsibilities as early state voters very seriously. And so the kinds of questions that they bring to talk to any potential candidate are, uh, you know, serious questions that make you stop and reflect on the way in which in our country there's nothing quite like the, the American presidential process for surfacing the most important issues of our time.
0: OK, I lied. I, I have one final question because you talked about Iowa. You've advocated for America getting rid of the electoral college system in the past, uh, basically suggesting it's not really Democratic. So should the Democratic and Republican parties still be allowing Iowa and New Hampshire to winnow the field?
1: Well, again, I'll say my experience so far is that uh, it's really impressive how seriously these voters take their role and and uh, the the intentionality they bring to it. I think they're you know it's fair to ask questions about how we can make sure that the process is as inclusive and participatory as possible. And I know there have been a lot of shifts, and we can probably expect to see that from cycle to cycle among the states. Uh, we should also uh, continue exploring uh, things like what they're doing here with what will be the first, uh, as far as I know, the first attempt to do a, a virtual caucus in Iowa, which is intended to, you know, make sure that uh, more people are included who may not have an easy time getting to a physical caucus. But I will say, you know, somebody really values uh, the, the some of the old school face-to-face dimensions of politics, things that simply don't come across in virtual or television campaigning. Uh, I'm glad that uh, that there are processes that are, uh, at least in some way, in the mix, even if everybody gets to, to vote in primaries, some processes that break that down a little bit, get it down to size, and allow voters to assess the, uh, the human qualities. And frankly, voters in every state watching what goes on in some of the early states to assess things that are just a little bit hard to uh, read from cable television interviews and digital media presence.
0: Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for joining us. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. And we're done. Big thanks for listening and to my producer, Tim Shovers. Have a great National Zipper Day and we'll be back tomorrow with another ProRata podcast.